right, so hello everyone and welcome to the AI Stories podcast. I'm Neil Lizer, I'm a data scientist at IWOCA, and I will be your host. So today, our guest is Antonio Ivanovsky. Antonio first did a bachelor in business administration and analytics at Moncler State University, and then did a master in business analytics at Villanova University. He did an internship in data analytics at UPS and actually had a full-time job there for a couple of months, but quickly decides to actually move and join Verizon, which is one of the world's leading provider of tech and communication services. He stays there for a couple of years, has different roles, but ends up being an AI product manager. But actually, a couple of months ago, he decides to quit Verizon and he joins Google as a senior data analyst. So hi, Antonio. I'm very happy to have you here with me today. How are you? Hey, Neil. Doing well. Thanks for having me. And yeah, something that I also forgot to mention is you have the coolest initials in the world because it's AI, and you actually have a website, right? AI with AI. And yeah, really love this. We'll definitely talk about this. You're also writing a book, The AI Journey, on career and stories. So we'll definitely talk about this towards the end of the podcast. What can I say? My mom knew I was going to be in this field, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so yeah, she she gave you the right name. So yeah, my first question is, I kind of want to know, how did you get into the world of data and AI? You started with a business background. So yeah, how did you join the field? Yeah, I mean, when I was starting university, I was like, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I started as like undecided. And I was just thinking like a bunch of classes, right? I like history. I like math. But when I started taking like some accounting classes or history, I'm like, okay, this is maybe not for like for a career, right? So I started exploring different fields. And um, I actually attended some seminar and I ended up signing up for a sports events and tourism major at at my school and uh yeah and i i will even sign up for a program to go to disney world in in florida to kind of like where i was going to learn like you know my my major my career well what i didn't realize was they what they were giving me a job for there was like a waiter at a at some like small cafe I'm like, okay, I mean, this is great because I've done like pizza delivery. I've done valet parking jobs, but I'm like, okay, this is from university and like the job they're giving me is like a waiter, right? Something didn't make sense. Well, one of my classes that I was taking, uh, it was just a general technology and business class. My, My professor called me into the office one day because I had missed some of his classes because I had to go on an overseas trip to Macedonia. And he gave us a homework in something at the time. I had no idea what it was called like SQL, SQL, right? And I did the assignment. I Googled it. I solved everything. And when I came back, he calls me into the office because he thought I was like plagiarizing. I'm like, why do you think I'm plagiarizing on my assignment? He's like, well, not only did you skip two of my classes, you're the only one who got like a hundred on this assignment. I was like, I don't know, man. I I Googled it. You know, it didn't seem too bad. And he's like, well, what's your major? And I'm like, you know, I'm sports, events, and tourism. And he looked at me and he was kind of like, Antonio, those things are kind of like hobbies, you know? 
why don't you switch to data analytics, make your money first, and then you can go to all your sports events and all your like music festivals that you want. I was like, I mean, sure. I don't know what data analytics is, but if you can tell me more about it. So he sits me down on the computer, opens up like Indeed, and he types in data analytics and goes right to the filter where it shows the salaries. And like the lowest salary was like $60,000, $65,000. And that time at Disney, I was going to be making like $8 an hour, which was, I don't know, like $15,000, $20,000 a year. So I was like, whoa, all right, this is interesting. And he was a very smart person. So I was like, what do I know, right? I had no clue what I wanted to do. So I'm like, I'm going to trust this person. So just sign up for it. And I haven't looked back, honestly. I fell in love with it and I've been doing it ever since. So at which stage was this of your career? Was it after your master, after your uh, bachelor? This was me, my second year of my bachelor's. Yeah, okay. I was just taking a bunch of classes. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so starting like second semester of my yeah, sophomore year, I kind of switched into data analytics and just went with it. Okay, cool, cool. Very cool. So you do your bachelor, do your master in data analytics. You start this internship at UPS and you actually get a full-time job, but you only stay for a couple of months because you very quickly decide to quit and join Verizon, actually. So can you maybe tell me more about this transition? Like, why do you accept a full-time offer and then move so quickly? Yeah. That's not really... <laughs> something that everyone does, right? Right, yeah. So, I mean, I loved UPS. You know, I had a lot of friends there. I had colleagues that was working on good projects and everything. So this was this was before I had my master's. I got my bachelor's. And while that, I was entering. Um, and they couldn't give me a full time while I was still in college. They wanted to see my diploma, right? So I kept working there for like a year. I get my diploma. And before that, they told me, as soon as you get your diploma, you show it to us, we're going to give you a full-time job. So I just transitioned seamlessly and I started working full time and I, I was happy. But three months into it, one of my one of my friends that was working at Verizon, he's like, uh, hey, I know we talk a lot about analytics offline. And he's like, there's this opening on my team at Verizon. He's like, do you want it? It's like senior analyst. So at that time, I was an associate at UPS and I did the math for me to get to a senior analyst at UPS, it would have been like two or three years. So I was like, wait, you're, they want to interview me. They're like, they're going to give you a shot. Right. So I go through the process at Verizon and uh, I end up getting the job. So now that to me was like, it was like a double, double promotion. And it was just, I was, I was getting like a 30, 40% raise. I was getting a bonus. I was going to get to like work from home sometimes, which none of those things were afforded to me as an associate. And when I told UPS, I'm like, okay, I want to work from like home and stuff. Oh, we can't do that, right? It's not allowed because you have to be like a certain level. And as soon as I told them I was leaving, they're like, oh, we can we can match that for you. I'm <laughs> like, well, now now it's a little too late, right? So this isn't this wasn't on my manager. This is kind of like, unfortunately, how human resources works. Until you have an offer in hand, they can't give you anything. But as soon as you tell them you're leaving. But for me, it was kind of too late to back back out because once you once you're out the door, it's better for you to leave. I think that's my opinion. And so, you know, it didn't matter to me. And I always talk that about in my on LinkedIn or talk about it in my book. I didn't care that it was three months in, right? Like I was starting, I was trying to start a family with my fiance at that time, and you know, we were living on our own. And somebody's giving me like 
uh, you know, a lot more money. I was like, of course, I'm going to take it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> How do you think about this transition? Like, first of all, the first thing is, it's like, as you mentioned, two to three years jump in your career. So are you not scared that this is like too technical or too difficult for you? Like they offer you the job, but don't you think maybe I'm not ready? Maybe I should wait or maybe it's going to be very difficult. H how do you feel? Because I would be quite stressed uh, personally. But... Uh, I mean, one thing for me was I had a friend there, so he kind of believed in me at the same time. But at the and at the same time, I I don't know. When I go in, I go in with full confidence. Like mm -hmm. if you if they offer me a CEO job, you know I'm gonna take it. You know I'm like mm -hmm. just give me the money, I'll figure it out. Because again, I, analytics we focus as a community, we focus a lot on the specific like tools and stuff. Mm -hmm. What I focused on, and this is great for anybody, is focus on the bigger picture, right? Instead of focusing on a specific tool like Microsoft Power BI or that I used at UPS, Verizon used. Tableau, right, for my team, I learned the, the principles, the frameworks. This is what when you use a bar chart, this is when to use a line chart, this is when to kind of how to present your KPIs and dashboards. So I was prepared, doesn't matter what tool was given to me, I knew kind of back of my mind, I had the plan laid out what I was going to do. And so that was kind of one thing to prepare myself. And the second thing is, which I recommend to people, when I, when I, as soon as I got the job, There was, I, here we give like a three, two, two or three weeks notice, right? Before you start your next job. So I talked to the manager. I'm like, oh, what tools do you use? And at that time they were using uh, Everize and SSIS, Microsoft SSIS for like their, their ETL processes and stuff. So as soon as he told me that, he said, do you know how to do it? I said, of course I know how to do it. I get the job. I go on uh, one of those, like it wasn't Coursera, but it was similar to that. One of the online platforms I type in. Oh, it's like a six hour course. And I like I took it afterwards. I watched some YouTube videos. So by the time I was starting work, I was like, oh, yeah, I have experience in this. But he, he doesn't need to know that I learned it in the last two weeks. <laughs> yeah, that's a good that's a good technique. So you think we should focus on the overall process and not like being an expert at a particular tool because companies are going to use different tools. And exactly. tools are also evolving with time, I guess, right? One language today might not be the same um, or the same might not have the same popularity in 10 years. But if you understand how things work, you can adapt quickly, learn things quickly and do well. Is that, is that what, what you mean? Exactly. Right. Precisely. And so one other thing, like thinking about the long term. So obviously you get this pay rise, like 30, 40%. But is this something... It's more something like short-term, right? You're just starting your career. So it's like a short-term pay rise, 30, 40%, but it's not something really in the long-term. Maybe UPS was better in the long-term or maybe another company was better. Did you think about this, like short-term versus long-term or not so much? You were just attracted by Verizon. You were excited in the moment and you just went for it. Yeah, I think... Well, I mean, young person, right? You don't think too much. <laughs> you know, you see <laughs> the thing and you go, right? Uh, I think, um, could UPS have taught me some other things? Yeah, Verizon. What I, the way I feel about my career is, to me, data is data. Some people like, so UPS does logistics, right? Verizon does like telco and telecom. And some people are like, oh, I don't want to work telecom or I don't want to work logistics. As long as I'm working with data, 
I can be doing like waste management. I mean, there's nothing wrong with waste management, right? But like mm-hmm. any field, give it to me. To me, data is data. And the way I get motivated for myself is I want to be learning something new. So whether that is learning ETL, learning more of like how to data engineer, learning predictive analytics, whatever that may be, that's the way I approach my career because UPS is like Fortune 50 company, right? Huge company, billions of dollars, same with Verizon. At the end of the day, I'm going to make a difference, but I'm not going to like change the world, right? And that's the way I see it is this is my job. This is what I'm here for. And I'm here to kind of like, make money for my family. And as long as I don't hate it, or like, I'm not miserable at work, I'm okay with doing whatever, you know. And then once I make my money, kind of like what my professor had told me, then I can do anything I like, like, I'm huge into like the web three blockchain world and stuff. And because I'm financially comfortable with my day job, I can do this stuff on the side at night, or I want I like helping people I like doing things like that. And then you know, I don't have to worry about money, because if you're worried about money and things like that, then you can't do the things you're very passionate about. So the way I, yeah, basically the way I approach my career is this is just my job, right? It doesn't have to be like my life calling that I'm going to change the world using this, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes complete sense. So so let me move back to Verizon. So you start your job there. Can you maybe describe what Verizon is doing? A lot of our listeners are from Europe, not sure if they are really familiar with Verizon. So just explain what the company is doing, how it works. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, Verizon is like, it's like T-Mobile, right? We sell phone plans, internet, things like that. And I was working in their internal department for risk management and compliance at first. So basically, we you have people at the store, right? You go in to buy a, a phone, right? You walk into the store. And people can do shady things because sometimes there's commission and you're incentivized to sell more. Also, these companies have a lot of, they have a lot of like internal data, right? You, you There's like phone calls data and there's like messaging like stuff, for example. And it's very, very sensitive and it has to be for approved internal use. But people could start, could get creative, right? Or maybe they will, you go in there and they say, hey, Neil, I want to sell you an iPhone. And then you walk out the store and you look on your bill and there's like an iPhone plus like some some headphones you were charged for, but you never got the headphones or you didn't want them. Well, you're like, what the heck? You know, how? why does this happen? Well, the person who's selling this to you, maybe if they sold these headphones, maybe they were going to get like 15% of, of like a bonus or something like that, right? So those are just examples I'm giving you. So we use internal tools. Everything is data, right? You have a lot, all of the data and the sales data is getting logged. So we look for that to make sure everything is legit. Also, customers go online. They will go on social media, for example, or they would go on an internal Verizon system and be like, hey, I felt like I was taken advantage of at the store. Uh, I didn't really mean to purchase this. So then we would do investigations using our data to make sure if the employee actually did something, something bad or not. So it was very internal kind of like investigations focused. We were using just like, you know, SQL, just to extract the data, create reports, because there's hundreds of thousands of employees. So you need, you can't do everything manually, right? Back in the day, they used to do manually. But now with the the advance of like analytics and machine learning, we tried to get ahead of that. So instead of somebody committing fraud, and then we catching them, can we use data to predict if this, where this is going to happen? 
So it was kind of like basically that whole ordeal, just basically protecting protecting the customers from uh, being like taken advantage of from employees. Okay, so making sure that the customer actually pays for what he wants and not gets extra things or yeah, gets tricked by the seller. Exactly, exactly. And that's kind of like, yeah, one portion. I mean, there's investigations into like issues between employees, you know, it could be anything. I mean, it could be like iPhones getting stolen from overseas, right? Somebody to steal somebody's identity and tries to take over the account because I don't know how it's in the UK, right? But the way in US, I tried to log into whatever site, I tried to log into my email and I have two-factor authentication. What does it do? It sends you, it says, I'm going to send you this code on Mm -hmm. your phone. So if somebody takes over your phone, they basically do recover passwords, sends it to your phone. They can log into all of your accounts. So your phone is like the entry level to to everything, basically, to your whole digital presence. So there's a lot of people who are incentivized to take control Mm -hmm. of your phone account and then try to do like whatever with it afterwards. So we kind of like protected all of all of that stuff. So I guess. There are two parts in what you explain. Like the first part is analyzing the data to create reports and try to understand what's going on with your customers. And then the second part is predicting where this is going to happen in the future. Is that right? Well, yeah, basically, because uh, like I'm saying, like we, you look at employee data, right? And some everybody or on average everybody's selling like a hundred iPhones in the stores to go with the first example we started. It's selling a hundred phones, and you see one employee they've sold like two hundred, right? Mm-hmm. You try to learn is this um, is this employee that much better than everybody else, or is they, are they doing something shady, right? Mm-hmm. So that's when you start using outlier detection and you start going into these anomaly techniques to see like what's happening here, right? Because so it's a double-edged sword because you have this, in this example, you have this employee who outsold everybody double. And I think this is where analytics gets interesting because if you just look at the data, this person is clearly an outlier, right? And you mm-hmm. say, it's not possible this person did this. They're committing fraud and the data never lies. And you go and you start investigating this person. You go up to this person and you say, hey, you are committing fraud, we're going to investigate you, give us all the accounts. And the danger with that is, what if this person was actually just really, really good at their job? Mm -hmm. You just accused your best employee you have at your company (laughs) of committing fraud. What do you think he's going to do? He's going to walk out of Verizon, he's going to go to T-Mobile and get a job there. And that was that's kind of like been where I've taken my career down the path of Let's ask before we like just trust the data or just using data. I build my career around using that human component, combining it with data and make sure before we make decisions using data, make sure they're actually like we think through all of the scenarios because a lot of times we have a lot of systems, right? Everything is automated. Like you get you go get like an insurance quote. Everything is by a computer. You you start doing uh, you apply for a credit card. A computer approves you or not. And I think that system, it could probably be more efficient. And so that was kind of where I always approach my work from that angle, right? Because it's easy to just go accusing somebody of committing something 
And just because like some statistical method said that there is a chance, mm -hmm. but that's the thing about AI and ML, everything is a probability, right? There's no like, there's very rarely is there black or white. There's always some gray area that we have to take into, into account. So just to move on to that. So that's the world I started in. And that was kind of a perfect transition for me to go afterwards in this AI product management uh, role. Because so I started right as a senior analyst, went to like a lead uh, lead analyst, and then I moved on to a product manager because I was a I wanted to learn about how okay if we're gonna be developing some kind of product, some kind of a data product, let's make sure we're asking the correct questions and not just building things for the heck of it. Okay, so as a product. AI product manager, you were more managing data scientists or data analysts to make sure that they were actually building the right tool. Is, it, is that right? Yeah. So the way it works usually is right. If you or in this, uh, we were part of a centralized organization and we would go into the business. So the folks who are doing the business, I would say, are like non-technical, right? On average, they're pretty non-technical. They know, let's say, everything about marketing. They don't know everything about it. They don't know much like data science. Data scientists on the other side, we are skilled in data. You, we know machine learning. We know the algorithms. We know random forests, deep learning. I mean, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But we don't know the business side. So a lot of times what happens in the real world, if you actually look at just the data, and I, I'm, it's not exact, but some 80 to 80 to 90% of AI projects in the real world fail. And it's not because of technology issue. It's because of communication. The data scientists would solve problems. And then the business will look at it like, I don't know if that problem needed solving exactly. Mm -hmm. Because, right, they're like, we do this day in and day out. So the, the data scientist asks the business, well, what do you need solving then? And the business doesn't know how to explain it in technical terms, right? They might ask a lot of times that the business will be like, oh, we need predictive analytics and we want you to build some machine learning model. And then if you actually know the thing, you're like, you, you don't really need a predictive model right here, right? So I sat between the business as the product manager and I would take the requirements from the business, like, okay, what is your guy's problem? And then I would translate that into basically technical terms with the data scientist and be like, okay, this is what they're saying in English. This is what they're saying in like nerd talk, basically, right? So I had to kind of balance both worlds of, of data and the business. And yeah, I, want, I made sure those two things are aligned. So then when something was being worked on, there was no confusion on like, what the heck are we actually trying to solve? So essentially you're, you're the translator, right? You the translator, exactly. That's kind of the... The role that was called, it was like AI translator or mm -hmm. AI like success manager. But I always say product manager because now it's evolved into that because after a lot of people are like, what the heck is a translator? Like, what are you translating, right? <laughs> so it seems, it could seem or it could sound simple when you mention I translate something from the business to the data scientists and back and forth essentially. But What's your kind of secret or how did you manage to make projects become successful? You mentioned 80 or 90% of the project don't make it in the end. So what did you do to ensure that yeah, data scientists ended up actually having an impact and not just optimizing some, building some algorithms for nothing? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, in, in theory, right, the goal is simple. It's a very clear and cut job in practice. 
you're not working with one business person and one data scientist. These projects were big. We would have like 20, 30 people on the project. So I had to make sure all of those 20 people, and you have not only data scientists, you have data engineers, you have data architects who are doing the data pipelines, and you have to make sure everything flows. So I had to talk to every single person, basically, and understand, like, what is your role in this and how is that happening? And a lot of times the data pipelines, when you're working like with complicated data and you need a real time or close to real time, it's not that easy to understand. So one thing I had to do was upskill technical wise to make sure, because I'm not a data engineer, right? I can't, like, I understand kind of what they're doing, but once they start throwing out like uh, some pipelines and how everything is connected, I'm like, okay, like I have no idea what's (laughs) happening. So I kind of have to upskill on that. Um, The second really good piece of advice that I've got is simplify the problem because when you work with a lot of people and it's easy to get carried away, right? You start doing a project and, oh, there's more data. Let's add more to this. And can the model do this and this and this and that? And then all of a sudden you have this whole like crazy thing. Simplify the problem. Machine learning, right? Yes or no, let's say a classification problem. We're answering one question. This one machine learning model is not going to solve all our problems. We might have to build three machine learning models, for example, and solve each thing separately. But I'm not going to go in and kind of try to solve three things at once because in my experience, a one-stop shop never works, right? Solve one thing, maybe two things max, but let's not go more than that. And then the other piece of advice is over-communicate. A lot of people are like, oh, you know, especially if the people you're working with, because I work with new people all the time, right? Because I wasn't, I was part of Essential, so we would go work with marketing, then we work with finance with somebody else. And when you don't know the styles of the people, it's better to over-communicate. Make sure you document things so that somebody tomorrow, if they have a question, oh, what was the project that we're working on? They can open that document and read it. So if something goes go tomorrow, if something goes bad and the project failed, you have proof for yourself, like... This is what we're working on. I don't know what like this person did or what this person thought, but it's right here, right? And I had to learn that because I always used to keep things in here and I'm still not the best at it, but I make sure to like, basically I document it. When I meet with people, we try to take as good as notes as possible. And it's very tedious. I get very excited and I want to get things done. And sometimes the documentation slow things down, but it is so important to do that. It's better to take like an extra week or two than to just rush into everything and then at the end of the day one this you're protecting yourself right you're protecting the project but tomorrow when it comes for a review at your job and your manager asks what did you do this year Mm -hmm. you kind of have everything written out so that's definitely one underrated skill that is so important for for like data people yeah i I agree that documentation is so important um i also always try to spend a few extra days writing things down because sometimes if you look at projects from three years ago, five years ago in my company, you try to understand them. And sometimes it's just like 1000 lines of code without any documentation or anything. And you're like, oh my God, how how am I going to do this? So definitely document your work. So, all right. So you have fun at Verizon, stays there for a couple of years, I think around three years. I was three years. Yep. Three years. Right. And then you actually get an offer from Google and you decide to move back to becoming a senior data scientist, a data analyst at Google. So why do you decide to join Google? So, I mean, I think 
Um, so Google accepts about three applications per month, right? You can go on there, apply three applications. So I personally, I came from small country, Macedonia, grew up here with a single mom and stuff. So I n- always thought of Google as like up here, right? And I was like down here. So I never thought I had a shot. But at the same time, I don't want to discount myself, right? If you don't try, you don't know what's going to happen. So I would have my resume. I would be happy ever. I'm happy of Verizon. I'm working on my projects. Every month, open up Google, see what jobs there are, right? You go on the Google site, there's thousands of jobs always. Hit apply. Because once you upload your resume, it's very easy to keep applying afterwards. Like right, the first time you're filling out information, afterwards, you're just clicking a button. It literally takes less than five minutes. So every month I would just go in there and just file three applications. I wasn't too concerned, you know, as long as it's in my realm, it didn't have to be exactly what I was looking for. I was applying business intelligence manager, a data analyst or data scientist, product manager. Like I would just do my due diligence, right? I don't want to regret it one day. So like, could I have worked at Google? And after applying some time, all of a sudden, one day I got a call and they're like, hey, we want to interview you, right? And at the same time, a recruiter, I post a lot of, I post, well, I don't post too many, too much content. I probably should do more personally, but I post content on LinkedIn. Somebody had noticed my profile. So two recruiters from Google at the same time reached out to me and they wanted to interview me. So I was like, wow. All right. Like, let's see what happens. I was happy at Verizon again. I was learning new things, but I wanted to, I wanted to give it a shot. I went through the interview process. Long story short, right. I ended up getting an offer for a senior analyst. And again, they the salary was like out of what a Verizon could even imagine, right? Mm-hmm. Like Google is very, very highly paid. So I don't want to sound like, you know, salary is not the only thing that I know, look for, right? Mm-hmm. I, wore, I went on different apps. I saw Google's work-life balance was great, like a 4.5 out of 5. And that was kind of like very important to me. So that checked the, the box, right? Because my wife at that time was about seven or eight months pregnant when I got the Google offer. So we were going to have a baby in like one month. And I was like, work-life balance to me is hugely important. So when I was interviewing with Google and before, like I straight up talked to the manager during the interview, I'm like, my wife is pregnant. By the time I start, she's going to be in like her ninth month. As soon as I'm having this baby, I need time off. And they said, no problem, right? So I started September 13th at Google. My We had a baby October 6th, and I went on a parental leave for a month. So I was two weeks in, and I already took leave, right? But to me, that was telling me that, okay, they're investing for me in the long term. And I was just being straight up with them, right? If they said, oh, you can't go on leave, I will say, okay, no, thank you. I'm not going to work for you, then, right? Because that was my number one thing. Number two thing, like I said, once now that was a check. Number two thing is like, as I mentioned before, I was going to do data. And the level of data or like if you think about top analytics data companies, Google is right up there, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So that was number two that I loved. I didn't care what kind of data it was, right? As long as it's data, I keep telling you that. And then number three, basically like doubled my salary that I was what I was making at Verizon. And I am young with a baby. To me, it's like a no-brainer, right? I met yeah. my three requirements and uh, I was like, let's roll with it, you know? Let's see what it brings. <laughs> How old are you? Sorry. 
So I am 26 right now. Wow, and already a baby. Oh, yeah. No, and it's the best thing ever, honestly. I'm young, very a lot of energy. I can sing and dance to him all day. And by the time I'm 50, hopefully he's out of the house and me and my wife can travel <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's a good plan. That's a good plan. I agree. So right, if, he, right. if he watches this interview 25 years from now, hey, son, I love you. But <laughs> I want to travel. Yeah. yeah, hopefully the video will still still be around with hey. 1 million views, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So going back to Google, so you joined as a senior data analyst and Lots of people often ask me this question, what's the difference between data analysts, data scientists? I think even sometimes the job description is not really clear. Sometimes they are just the same thing. So what's your view on the difference between data analysts, data scientists? Is this just the same thing or are they slightly different? So it depends on the company, right? When I was coming out of university, I hated being called an analyst. I was every job I was going to UPS. I'm like, can you just call me a data scientist? <laughs> like, what? You're you're like an associate, right? An analytics associate was my title. I'm like, okay, can you call me like data science associate? Because that was the hot word, right? Data science was labeled as like the sexiest job of the 21st century, and everybody wanted to be called that. And what what happened with that was companies are trying to attract employees. And it didn't matter what you were doing. If you were working with data, job description would say a data scientist, right? So it's a little bit of that kind of like a little scammy, I guess. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's it's just marketing. It's a game, right? That's why I always, when I tell people, it's, it's, it's all a game. It's you versus the company. When you're interviewing and I tell you to put, so if I was interviewing for a, let's say when I was at UPS, I was an analytics associate, like I said. I was interviewing for a data analyst role. I just changed it on my resume to data analyst, right? It's like the same job, but it's just a different title. And then afterwards, it, I had a couple different resumes. And when I was applying to different companies, if I'm applying for a data scientist job, my title on my resume says like data scientist associate, right? Or data science associate. Because at the end of the day, I understood that when you look at the, the title, like you said, and you look at the job description, it's a lot of times a similar work, right? You sign up. So to me personally, the way I thought about it or in the way I kind of like think, think about it, data analyst, you have existing data and you're kind of working on reporting. Maybe you're, you're doing, or I guess reporting is business intelligence analyst. Data analysts, you probably know like Python R and you're manipulating the data, you're cleaning it. You might be doing some kind of like exploratory, let's say machine learning and stuff. Data scientist, but you're not like as a data analyst, you're probably not producing like enterprise level machine learning models. You're not probably putting them into your company-wide production, right? You might be doing small things for your team, but it's not as complex as like a data scientist. Is that what happens in reality? No, because I've met data scientists who just do Excel work and I've made data analysts who do like enterprise machine learning, right? Um, but I always tell people the difference is the salary. For some reason, data scientists, you, you apply the same job and you do the same things, the data scientist is going to get paid more just because of the name. So that's why names matter, right? But that was that's kind of like my take. But to me, 
it came back to when I was working as a product manager at Verizon, what determined the success of a project was a good data analyst. So what I mean by that is when I go into the department where it's, I would go into the marketing department, I'm not a domain expert in that field. And who is the one person who knows the data inside and out is a data analyst. They clean the data, they, they bring it from the data warehouse and they manipulate it. They know how it works, the ins and outs. And a lot of times I would go into the department and I'll be like, okay, give me somebody who like, let me talk to the data analyst. And they're like, oh, we don't have data analysts here. We're relying on you. And that was kind of the worst part of the projects because I had no one on that other side that I could be, who can be technical and kind of bring me up to speed. And the projects took a lot longer. So once I move away from that field, I really started to see how underappreciated, I guess, and uh, under, not underappreciated, but underrated data analysts are. Because a lot of people enter that world as a data analyst and all of us try to rush, or at least most of us in my experience, we try to rush, try to make it to that machine learning phase, right? When I when I was starting my career, I, I hated cleaning data. I just want to do the machine learning. But the reality of the world is, 80% of the work is going to be cleaning data and getting it ready for machine learning. Mm-hmm. Because right now you have you have data robot, you have a lot of like auto ML tools. It's easy to do a machine learning model. It's hard to prepare the data. So once I moved away from that, I really started appreciating how much it means and how like valuable the skill set is. So that's why when I went to Google as a senior data analyst, I'm like, okay, last time when I was in this role, I really rushed to get out of it. Now I want to take my time, really absorb the information mm-hmm. and really, really learn what makes it like a good data analyst. So kind cool. of going, going full circle. <laughs> okay. So coming back to the yeah. data analyst, you actually realize that it's an important role and want to start learning more and do this, doing this again. So important, cleaning the data, making it usable for people, making sure the data quality is there, right? Because companies have amassed so much data and 90% of it is garbage. So don't take my like percentage, right? It's like just an <laughs> example, but a lot of it is garbage. So the data analyst is the one and the cleaning and manipulating the data. The tedious work that not many people want to do is where a lot of the value is coming from. And I think it's only going to become more valuable in the future. Yeah, even I, I'm a data scientist, but I spend like a lot of my time cleaning data. As you mentioned, building a model is very simple, right? You have exactly. libraries for this. You call model.fit, model.predict. Yeah, exactly. And that does the job for you. But getting the right data, there is nothing that's going to get exactly the data set that you want, cleaned, processed. So that's where you should actually spend most of your time. Yeah, and that's where universities, I think, got it wrong a little bit. And a lot mm-hmm. of time in university, they would go on Kaggle, download a clean data set, and you just exactly. spend your time doing machine learning. And then you go into the real world and you're like, I don't know what's happening, but this is not what university was like. Exactly. Sometimes the most difficult is even just to get the data. Sometimes exactly. Even yeah. getting the data is actually so difficult. So yeah. When, 100%. When you... <laughs> All right. So I know want to move on to the last part of this podcast episode about your career you've you're currently writing or you're almost done writing a book called the ai journey where you talk about stories and career you're quite interested in career path and things like that as i am 
So yeah, can you maybe tell me a bit more about this book? What is the goal? Why did you write it? Yeah, so I was just planning to write like LinkedIn articles. And one night I sat down and I ended up writing like 15 like different like sections. And I was like, holy crap, like this could be actually something, something bigger. But why did I start writing in the first place? It was because when I was going from UPS to Verizon over that process, or when I was trying to get promoted at Verizon from a senior analyst to a lead, because I was fairly young. Mm -hmm. So it was always, so when I was a senior analyst, right, it required three years of a job requirement. I was there, I had three months of professional experience and I got this job. But what's happened is once I got, I wanted to get promoted, they're like, oh, you're too young or you have to be patient or, and I didn't want to accept that because to me, I'm like, I'm doing this. You're telling me I deserve it, but I cannot get this because of like my, my age or by my experience, right? Because I'm not meeting some like requirement on a piece of paper that somebody else wrote up. And when I would talk to directors or I would talk to like people who are longer into their career, they advise, oh, Antonio, be patient. You're young. And I'm like, I'm not going to be patient, right? Like you're telling me like I did. It's like, hey, Neil, you deserve 20,000 or 30,000 more dollars. But let's wait a couple of years because until you get a little older, like it to me didn't make any sense. And when I kept talking to older people, it just could never resonate their advice. And a director is making, let's say, half a million dollars and they tell me, be patient. Well, it's easy for them to say when they're like already rich. Right. But I'm trying to like start my life. I'm trying to, you know, like get my first house, get a first apartment, baby on the way. I'm like, I don't want to be patient, especially when I know I deserve this part. So that's where I started writing and creating content to, to people. Um, and like same thing, like you said, like, oh, why did you switch your job? Like after three months? don't don't they say after your first job you shouldn't quit you're going to be seen as a job hopper all of these things they tell you i said this is not the 1950s right this is 2021 this is 2022 right now and it's a new world people are constantly switching jobs i don't know anybody who stays at their job for 30 years anymore right that's what happened back in the day you had your pension you had a nice retirement check if you stayed at the job for 30 years that world is gone so I wanted to write something that's going to a college student who's going to read it or somebody who's early in their career like me is going to read it and not listen to like the like people who are like the naysayers and who are telling them to do something uh, that doesn't exist anymore. Like, let's try to build a new future, basically, and let's do it our way. So that was kind of like my inspiration. Yeah, I actually read a few stories. So essentially the book is a collection of small stories, right? I read a few of them. I really like the one about mentioning how like people remember how you make them feel and how to actually, mm -hmm. why you would be good at your job. So sometimes it's not, not just the skills. So can you maybe describe this story a bit and explain how you can succeed at your yeah. job without being like the best coder in the world. Yeah. So a little bit, the, the book, the way I was meant for the book is you should be open. You should be able to open any section and it should stand on its own, right? Like you don't need to read the book in order. You can read or whatever you want. You can read one story and I hope you get something little out of every, every story. So that was kind of like my intention behind the book. That section that you, you said, people remember how you made them feel. I, I think it's very important lesson because when I was never, right, I was never the best coder. 
I was never, I mean, there's always going to be somebody better than you when it comes to like technical stuff, right? There's really smart people out there. But when I was leaving my, my team, going from the lead analyst to going to a product manager, I wasn't going to be the technical person anymore. I was going to switch teams. And everybody kept telling me like, oh my God, we're going to miss you so much. And, and they were so sad. And I was like, there's another person who's coming in because I know who was going to replace me. I'm like, this person is like just as good as me, if not better, right? Uh, in terms of like the technical skills. And then I started realizing based on reading the messages that people like, oh, we love the happy hours that you host because like every week I would host a happy hour event because this was when COVID was starting and I would have events and we would be like playing music and people would have to guess the song, right? It was just a lot of uh, fun. Or they would tell me like, you know, like, oh, your projects, like, you know, were so good. And uh, it was always like fun, pleasure working with you. So when I started talking to the people like, okay, what was the best part about it? And it was, I kind of got the feel it was the way I made people feel. So you as a a non-technical person would come to me and be like, hey, AI, like, can we can we get this manual report and can we automate it, for example? And I was always like, like, let's go, like, let's do this. You know, like we get to automate this. Of course we can do it. If it's on stack overflow, like I'll figure out how to get this done for you. So I was very, always very enthusiastic about my job, very confident. And that made people feel safe because a lot of times when we are a technical person, a lot of time people are like, well, is technology going to automate my job? Am I going to lose my job because of this? Right? People, If people feel scared, they're going to kind of be more protective. And the way I always approached it was, I'm not here to take your job away. I'm the, Give me the most boring manual thing you have and that you don't like doing. I'm going to automate it for you. And when I did that, and now all of a sudden that... 10 hours they were spending a week doing some manual Excel report. They can just look at it in five minutes and then just solve it like this. They're like, wow, he's not here to like take my job. He's here to like, to actually help me. And once they see you as a friend and a partner, rather than somebody who's trying to take away your job, they open up a lot to you. They would come to me afterwards and they're like, Hey, Antonio, you helped us so much before. Like, can we do this now? This is our bigger problem. So after a while, because they like me and they trusted me, right? The most important thing is trust. They would tell me about other problems they have. So then I will be like, oh, well, how about, you You know how last time we automated something and they'll be like, yeah, let's now let's do some machine learning, right? So now, now I have machine learning opportunities and I was basically able to pick and choose which projects I wanted to work on because a lot of people would come to me and they just tell me their problems, you know? So it was that kind of like a back and forth relationship that was really good. And so that when I was leaving, it was kind of, I guess, the mindset was like, okay, who are we going to tell our problems Mm -hmm. to, right? So Mm -hmm. it wasn't about, and I always say it, if you're the best coder and you're the best technical person, but people don't like working with you, like if if you're mean to them, they're not going to tell you their problems and you're not going to be as successful at at your job as you could be as if people actually liked you, you know, because you spend so much time with these people, might as well, like, you know kind of make a good relationship yeah no that's important actually like soft skills communication Mm -hmm. and also i feel doing things that are a bit outside of your actual role like as you mentioned organizing happy hours or things like that that's something that people don't ask during interviews right uh if you organize happy hours or things like that but that's (laughs) actually 
something that can completely change a team, like make the atmosphere good. And also, yeah, I feel that's also quite important. It's good to be able to code and to have good math skills, stat skills, SQL skills, but soft skills as a data scientist are very important. And I feel especially when you code, because data scientists are usually, I don't want the stereotype, but a bit more geeky, maybe not mm -hmm. as outgoing as others. And so if you're someone that yeah is outgoing, can communicate, uh, make the team feel good, I feel that's actually very important. Yeah, hundred percent. And right, and some people are not going to be always. You, not everybody's going to want to feel comfortable like hosting like happy hours and stuff. Mm -hmm. But everybody, everybody could be kind, right? So if you're more reserved and you don't want to speak up, maybe take notes during calls or when people are doing things. Kind of like remember the small parts and just be kind to them. And that's also you could. So you got to find what makes you comfortable, but at the same time, yeah, like find the soft skill. It's so important because. Technical skills, as we've been talking about for the past uh, however many minutes, are very important, but they change, right? Tomorrow, there could be a new tool. There could be a new way of doing things, but communication and soft skills are always going to be there. So sometimes I'm, something I'm wondering, since the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned you were learning about NFT, you're 26, you have a son, you're writing a book, you're hosting happy hours. So... How do you do to manage all of this and make sure everything is successful? On top of this, you also have a job at Google, which takes time, I guess. So yeah. <laughs> how do you manage all of this? How do you find the time and the motivation? Yeah, I think, yeah. So in terms of motivation, I think it's I, I everything I do, I do the things that I love, right? Um. I, while I've been talking a lot about salary and stuff, like I'm telling you is I, I've got the salary at my day job so I can be financially comfortable to do everything else. I do crypto, I do Web3. So tomorrow I'm actually, well, tomorrow as of this recording, I'm starting to host uh, this office hours. It's called the Builders of Web3. And I'm going to be hosting that. And we're just, gonna, it's like, it's going to be very informal conversation about people can come to us and ask questions about, they have about like building and developing things. But I'm doing that because I love it, right? I assume you're hosting this podcast because this is what you love doing. And when you love doing things, it doesn't feel like work. It's fun, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like mo mo my motivation. I'm also a big gamer. So like I have my setup here to the, uh, next to me that you can't see. But I also spend a lot of time doing that. And it's just, I think, prioritizing. My number one is always where I'm going to be my son and my wife. So I want I have to make sure that uh, what they need. And when they need me, I'm always there with them. I spend a lot of time with my son. I mean, it's, it's never enough time with him. Right. So <laughs> you'll see that one day if you ever become a, a father, but I, the things that I do. So after he goes to sleep, then I would go on the computer and try to educate myself and try to learn stuff. Or, uh, my wife, my wife is super supportive of me. Like we will be sitting in the living room, right. And we're spending time together but maybe she will be watching a, a show and I'll be watching the show. But at the same time, maybe I will be reading a, like something about like right now I'm, I'm learning about like some like smaller, like, like crypto coins and stuff like that. And then we have like, we will have a conversation about it. So we're sp still spending time together, but at the same time, I'm still like doing my thing and she's doing her thing. So uh, her being very supportive and understanding is like definitely a, a top priority. How do you manage this? Like, 
watching a show while reading crypto like that's just something i cannot do like you just do two things at the same time and it works oh no i mean the thing is like multitasking is not a thing right so if i'm watching tv and i'm doing something one of those things is going to suffer so it's not always going to be perfect but the way i i've been approaching it is when i put videos even when i'm working at google i will play youtube videos in the background for example and i will i will replay i will play something now And not everything sticks to me. If I remember 15% of it or 20% of it, it's good enough because in a month or two, a new video is going to come up and I'm going to learn it again and I'm going to keep learning it again. So I, what I've done is I guess for prioritizing is narrow down your scope. Like, right. There's my family, there's my day job there. And like, which is data science. Right. And then there's crypto. So all of those things. And then like the fourth thing, I guess, is like exercise. Right. So I make sure to get in time for that. And then it just repeats the process. I mean, if I'm in my day job, I'm doing like the data stuff and I'm doing crypto. So I'm, I don't have too many interests. I used to have so many interests and I was spread out all over the place that could get overwhelming. Now I've narrowed it down to these like uh, three or four things and everything I do is, is kind of is around that. Okay. That so narrow sense. down, narrow down your interests and focus on those three, four things only. Don't try to learn about everything in the world because yeah. exactly because there's so many shiny things and that's always with me it's like oh there's a like virtual reality should i do virtual reality like no do not do that right this is not your priority right now and the good story that got me into this was my favorite author and uh, you can i can message you afterwards if you want to link it for people it's derek sivers and his website is sivers.org and he tells a story about there was a donkey right And the donkey was tied to the like to the fence. On the left side, there was hay. And on the right side, there was water. And the donkey was hungry and thirsty. And it couldn't decide which way to go. Should I go drink first? Should I, do, should I eat first? Should I drink first? Should I? And the donkey ended up starving because it couldn't decide what to do. And the, the, go, the story goes that if the donkey was smart enough, it would have realized, okay, let me just go eat hay first and then water or eat water first and hay. You have time for both, but you cannot do both things at the same time. Mm -hmm. And the way I realized is I'm 26. There's going to be, I'm not stopping the things I'm doing till I'm like 80 years old or until I cannot go anymore. So that's why I've narrowed down instead of trying to do everything at once, I'm going to do a few things. And then 10 years from now or five years from now, I might say, I don't want to do data anymore. I'm going to go like study history and that's what I'm going to do. And then for the next 10 years, I might dedicate my life to that, right? So I'm realizing I have a lot of years left in my life. I mean, hopefully, right? You don't know what's going to happen, but <laughs> uh, yeah. the data says that I have uh, at least 50, 60 years left. So I have narrowed down my interests and I'm focusing on one of them at a time because I understand. I, I mean, I love history. I love music. I love everything. And I realized I can't do everything at once. Yeah. Data says that you have 60 or 80 years left, but you told me you shouldn't trust the data all the time. So. Exactly. I mean, I, I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. <laughs> Hopefully that. Hopefully that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Thanks a lot. That was actually very, very interesting. I just have one last question before we actually finish this episode. If you had one advice to give to someone to progress in his or her career, what would it be? Just one advice, simple. 
Um, one piece of advice for somebody to progress in their career. I think it's uh, learn, like, especially because we're talking about data career, is focus on storytelling and communications because you have to be able to explain the things that you're doing. You have no idea how many times I've talked to the smartest people in the world who've done the most amazing projects. If you cannot explain to a person uh, what you're doing, it's not going to get used, right? Because ultimately, you're going to have to work with people. You have to rely on other people to use your product or your model and stuff. And if it's too complicated, people are just going to zone out and it's not going to go well. So invest those skills. Because whether you're in data or tomorrow you switch careers and you want to go into a totally different career, communication is still going to be there. You're not going to work at a job probably that's not going to require that you communicate with someone. So definitely really, really, really focus on that. And it's going to pay off in your life and in your career. Well, thanks so much, Antonio. Um, it was great to have you. It was a great episode of AI Stories with AI. Yes. Yeah. Good luck. Good luck with everything. And yeah, hope to see you very soon. Hey, well, I look forward to watching this video in 25 years with my son. <laughs> exactly, exactly.